The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Host, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey, this is Post Reports. I'm Kimbrielle Kelly. It's Wednesday, March 6th. Today, Kamala Harris's complicated history as a prosecutor, what science doesn't know about pregnancy, and a big moment for LeBron James. Back in 2009, an email was going around the San Francisco District Attorney's office. It was sent by a high-level attorney to the DA's second-in-command, and it was urgent. The email noted that a crime lab technician who had played a crucial role in recent cases had become, quote, increasingly undependable for testimony. In November 2009, there was a lab technician, and she had been found to have not shown up at a number of cases. Michael Cranish is an investigative reporter for The Post who's been digging into this decade-old case. There was a arrest and a conviction that she had a couple of years earlier on a domestic assault charge. And she served a particular sentence, and she was also suspended briefly from the crime lab. So the police department knew that. So this was one of several problems, including the fact that the technician was not showing up on court on some days to testify. Even though the DA didn't run the crime lab, at the time, the office did nothing to raise the alarm about the problems with the lab tech. But then... A few weeks later, it was found that this same lab tech was alleged to have taken cocaine home from the crime lab. Then the DA's office made another mistake. Once the problems came to light, they failed to inform defense attorneys about concerns with the lab tech and the crime lab's evidence. There were hundreds of defendants who were either in jail, about to go to jail, or possibly serving some sentence of some kind. And of course, they wanted to know about this, and they saw this as a way, correctly, to have their cases dismissed. In fact, the city's public defender, Jeff Adachi, who represented a lot of these people, he was outraged that his office had not been informed about problems at the crime lab. So this became a huge story in San Francisco at the time. The technician at the center of San Francisco's drug lab scandal admitted to investigators she took small amounts of cocaine evidence home with her. The scandal was a total disaster for San Francisco's criminal justice system. One of the biggest San Francisco stories of the year. And in the end, because of fears that the crime lab's work could all be tainted, the city's district attorney did something extraordinary. She dismissed hundreds of cases, including many where convictions had been secured and sentences were already being served. When I became aware of it, we did something about it. And I take responsibility for everything that happened in my office. Full responsibility. I it was in constructive knowledge because okay. my number two knew about it. Yes. And my office knew about it. And right. I took full responsibility and take full responsibility. There's so what, no excuses. The district attorney at the time was Kamala Harris now a Democratic senator from California and a 2020 presidential candidate. Okay. Last month, Michael sat down with Harris to talk about her time as San Francisco's anyway, DA. So thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Of course. 
So I went to Capitol Hill, and this interview was not at her Senate office. It was in the office of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. And it's not the kind of grand setting you might think. It was a windowless room. There was nothing on any of the walls. It was very small. There was sort of a ratty little desk and a computer. And we had the interview there cramped in there with a couple of aides. I could ask you three hours worth of questions easily. Well, there's a lot of of material. (laughs) Now, as Harris runs for the White House, framing herself as a progressive prosecutor, her record as DA is getting renewed scrutiny. The question of whether she has been tough on crime, too tough on crime, too lenient on criminals, it's going to be a major issue that she'll have to answer throughout her campaign. And one of the things I wanted to look at most was the period that she was district attorney. This was sort of the ground truth for Kamala Harris because she is out there working with her staff to prosecute people in San Francisco. And inherently, there's a lot of controversy over many cases. When Michael sat down with Harris, he asked her specifically about the crime lab case and that email sent within her office. So in this case, I want to ask you about the um, when you first heard about what was going on at the crime lab. Yeah. So there was an email from Sharon Wu, who I talked to yesterday. Okay, good. Um, and that was written in November of 2009. So in that email, she said um, that Deborah Madden was undependable, and she put undependable in all caps. So this became a big issue in that court case. Yeah. You remember this? Mm-hmm, I do. Okay. I never saw this email. Oh, well, that was that was my first question. Mm-hmm. Did you ever get no, this email? I didn't. I did not. Um, and that was part of my frustration with um, the process. But I take full responsibility. When you sat down with Senator Harris and she took responsibility, did she express whether she had any regret or said what she might have done differently? Well, it's now nine years later, and I think she's had a lot of time to think this through. And she was very forthright, saying again and again, she probably said, I accept responsibility 10 times during our interview. She wanted to make it clear, because she knows how this story comes out and what the ending is, that she wasn't trying to blame others. She knew that her number two person had received the email in which the lab tech was described as undependable. The concern I have about describing the lesson I took from it is that it may come off as sounding like I am going to make excuses for what happened. Mm. And I'm not offering any excuses. I take full responsibility. Okay. When you run an office of a lot of people and you have, and you, you, you cannot run a large office without... Um, without uh, designating folks and, and, and giving them the authority and responsibility for taking on certain respons- taking on certain issues. And that's what happens. The buck stops with me, though. Mm-hmm. The buck stops with me. So during that time period, take me back a little bit. What was she like as a district attorney? Right. So this case came just as Harris was seeking to be attorney general of California. She was not a favorite in this race. Having this case and really was a crisis develop while she's in the midst of a campaign was extraordinarily bad timing for her. There was a Democratic primary opponent, Chris Kelly, who was critical of her on the crime lab matter. There was another important detractor from that time, Jeff Adachi. Jeff Adachi was elected public defender in 2002. Kamala Harris was elected district attorney in 2003. In fact, they'd known each other for years. Jeff Adachi and Kamala Harris had gone to law school together in San Francisco 30 years ago. In fact, Adachi was Kamala Harris's tutor. So now you fast forward all these years later, and it's really interesting. They're on opposite sides of the criminal justice system in San Francisco. When Adachi found out that many of his clients had not been told about the problems of the crime lab, 
by Harris's office, he was very upset, made some pretty critical comments of Kamala Harris at the time about how he should have been told, sent a letter to Kamala Harris's office asking when she had first learned about this. So in the reporting for this story, I went to San Francisco and I went to Jeff Adachi's office and spoke with him for about an hour. Part of the interview was about her experience with the crime lab, but also about the fact that she's running for president, what he thought about her. Was she progressive enough for him? And he had some concerns. He wasn't out there saying, yes, I back Kamala Harris for president. He wasn't ready to say that. He wanted to know more about Harris's record. It was a different era then. Um, You know, could she have been more progressive given that she was a prosecutor of color? Yeah. You know, did I hope that? Yeah, at times. Was I disappointed? Yeah. But at the same time, you know, I saw her as somebody who was in a position to, to make a difference. He said, while he wasn't blaming Harris directly for causing the scandal, he did say that he thought she was slow to react. And that was a great concern because he said, Harris's office never told us the defense that this had happened. And clearly that's his job. His job is to look out for defendants. And he was upset at the time in 2010. And he still had some concerns about that. When that all happened, I think she was slow to respond. You know, that she... She, uh, I remember, I think she made a comment because, you know, when I found out what was going on, uh, we held a press conference and publicized, you know, the fact that uh, all this misconduct was occurring. And I immediately said, you know, this is going to uh, result in dismissal of hundreds of cases. And I think her response was something like, yeah, this might affect a dozen cases or something. Mm. And right away I knew, oh no, this is much bigger. I mean, it was a moment of dealing with something that should not have happened and trying to correct for it. Yeah. And it was a moment of, you know, there were a lot of bleep bleep ups, (laughs) you know, across the board. It was very frustrating. I mean, and it was frustrating also because I didn't run the crime lab. Does she think that this is going to cause her problems on the campaign trail? Well, I think she knows that this is an issue that people ask about, just as uh, I asked her about it, because it was a major crisis. There's a lot of things you can look at there, but this became a huge story in San Francisco. It was headlines day after day. It's not something that she's focused on so far as she runs and talks about her record. That's partly our job in the press is to ask those questions. But she knows those kind of questions are coming, and she knew that I was going to ask her about that time period, which I think is why you know, she was very forthright in saying probably 10 times in the interview, I take responsibility for this, no excuses, and was said the buck stops with me. I'm responsible for what happens in my office. Fully responsible. Someone, and this is, this is frankly the risk that comes with having your name on the front door. Mm-hmm. Michael Cranish is an investigative reporter for The Post. Michael spoke with San Francisco public defender Jeff Adachi just days before he died in February. Adachi was 59 at the time, and according to local reports, he died of a heart attack. After Adachi's death, Senator Harris, who said she had been considering him as a criminal justice advisor on her campaign, told Michael this. I mean, it's tragic. I was very sad that he died, and I still am. Jeff and I grew up together. We grew up together. Who would have thought that we didn't have time?
I mean, it's kind of amazing that like human reproduction is pretty much the most fundamental health issue we have as a species, if you think about it, and that there are actually just a lot of things about it we still don't understand. Every year, millions of women in the U.S. get pregnant and have babies. When I became pregnant with my daughter in 2017, I had been in ongoing treatment for upper back pain at a physical therapy site, and I saw the head doctor of their physical medicine department, who, upon learning that I was pregnant, said he could not treat me with any medicine because none of them were proven safe. Surprisingly little is known about even some of the basic science of how pregnancy works. I developed an infection about two weeks postpartum. The emergency OB on call prescribed me an antibiotic. As he was walking out the door, I said, I'm assuming this is safe for breastfeeding. And he said, yeah, I think so. I didn't love his tone, so I immediately started to Google, and I also placed a call in to our pediatrician. What I found was this antibiotic has been linked to childhood leukemia when transferred through breast milk. And then my pediatrician called me back and told me not to take it under any circumstances. I'm Carolyn Johnson, and I'm a science reporter. Carolyn got interested in this topic in part for personal reasons. I am pregnant right now, basically one week away, hopefully, from meeting this creature that's been incubating inside. And when she got pregnant, she learned some things that frustrated her as a science journalist and just as a woman. You know, like if... You take any kind of medication and you become pregnant, suddenly you begin Googling, like, should I be taking this medication anymore? Is it safe? You ask your doctor. There's bulletin boards. But there's very little information about many drugs. And part of that is because researchers have historically been reluctant to study pregnant women. And there are even rules that make it harder to research pregnant women and the effects, for example, a certain drug might have on them. I do think that the legacy of thalidomide still is really strong. Thalidomide was a drug that was widely prescribed to pregnant women in Europe in the 1950s to treat morning sickness, though it was never approved in the U.S. It caused severe birth defects. And so that legacy really colored how a lot of companies, researchers think about pregnancy because the horrible thing that happened was that all these women had children with severe birth defects. So that, I think, is where a lot of this idea that you have to protect women from research came from, because no one wants to see that ever happen again. As a result of that history, there have been strict rules around researching pregnant women. Until recently, for example, pregnant women needed the consent of their partner to participate in research trials that could benefit their baby. Very few drug companies would be motivated to test a drug in a woman. Any drug you would take for a chronic condition, like 98% or something of drugs, have no determined risk for a pregnant woman, which means it's like a bit of a black box. You don't know what to do. I talked to a woman who during a flu pandemic was working at the CDC and trying to decide what should we tell pregnant women about whether to take Tamiflu if they get the flu. And they had so little data and they mulled it over and they just went back and forth. And then they did recommend that women take it. And they are glad that they did. But she said this was one of the proudest moments of her career because prior to that, the knee-jerk reaction would have just been 
to exclude the women or just not to make a recommendation because of the lack of data. What have been some of the barriers and have things started to change? Yeah, so some of the barriers are kind of written into policy, and those do seem to be changing. Last year, a federal task force suggested that women who participate in research trials shouldn't need the permission of their uh, partner in order to participate in a trial that could benefit their fetus. And they took women out of this vulnerable category. Pregnant women were named along with people with mental disabilities or children and prisoners as a vulnerable population who were going to be subject to like undue coercion. And they took them out of the list. So, I mean, it's kind of almost just symbolic, but it had been a long time coming for a lot of people who were looking for changes. The reluctance to research pregnant women has made it hard to test new treatments for very serious and fairly common pregnancy complications. I did talk to some scientists who are trying to develop a therapy for preeclampsia, which is this pretty dire maternal condition, but basically a sick placenta sort of causes the mother to have very high blood pressure and can cause all kinds of problems. And the only real treatment at the moment is for the mother to deliver the baby in the placenta, which could be weeks and weeks early. So it's terrible for everyone. And so they're trying to develop a drug that would be quite novel to allow women to continue their pregnancies longer and protect their health better. And they have some exciting research in baboons, and so they're kind of like moving forward. But they did, you know, come into this not from the pregnancy field and were startled, I think, about how much resistance they felt from investors who just didn't want to be involved in research on women and their fetuses. What were the investors saying? Well, it's always hard to know because, you know, companies get passed on for all kinds of reasons. But they had a kind of an elite roster of scientists, some really cool science and what they thought was a compelling pitch. And they said the doctors and the scientists would get really excited and supportive and thought this was a great way to go. And then the legal people would end the discussion because of the prospect of having to do a clinical trial with this vulnerable population and blah, blah, blah. So they are still pursuing that research, but they're trying to find other kinds of partners and looking at a more nonprofit pathway for developing that therapy. There are also many populations of women that have just never really been studied in terms of pregnancy. Well, I spoke to one woman who is pregnant now and has a disability. She has spina bifida. So she's right now in the middle of her second pregnancy, and she actually had a pretty positive experience with her first one. But it still meant that every single thing that came up was kind of like a mystery that had to be solved. She even told me that you have to get weighed every time you go to the doctor, which is very often when you're pregnant. And she said the nurses would just eyeball her because they didn't really have a good way to put her on a scale. So there are just populations that haven't really been looked at just to even get a sense how many people are going through this, like what kinds of questions do they have? Are they even being told the right things? She said she had heard like anecdotes from friends where they had been just told not to get pregnant because their doctors just didn't really know what to do based on just like a total vacuum of information, not because there was any real health reason for them to not have a child. 
So because they were disabled, a better option would just be to not have children because they didn't know what they were going to be facing in terms of getting medicine and procedures. And it sounds like the woman that you talked to was just so difficult just to navigate a regular doctor's appointment. Yeah. I mean, she has successfully had her first child and she's very happy going through her second pregnancy now, but she just felt like this shouldn't be so mysterious. These issues have been in the news a lot more lately. I have to deal every day with the fact that there's nothing that I can do to bring Kira back. Many are shocked to learn that the U.S. not only has the worst maternal mortality rate in the entire developed world, but that these rates are on the rise. Yeah, I think the attention to the U.S.'s pretty embarrassing maternal mortality, which is just that we don't compare well to other affluent countries when it comes to how women and babies do, probably has helped kind of focus on this issue. I mean, generally, there's long been kind of a wave of activism that women's health issues just generally were overlooked. And there were a lot of efforts to make sure like women were included in research trials and like women's health issues were studied. And now I think that's moving even beyond women into both pregnant and lactating women, since a lot of women will become pregnant at some point in their life and they may be taking a medication or may have a complication. Like we we want to know more about it. So the NIH breaks into different research categories. Like they break out how much they spend each year on rare diseases or, you know, different kinds of cancer. And it's all on this website. And only in 2017 did they start breaking out how much they were spending on pregnancy or breastfeeding, which is kind of late given that if you looked at this list, you probably wouldn't even recognize a lot of the diseases that are listed because they're some of them are really obscure. They're very rare. And it isn't that they weren't funding this research before. They just weren't like grouping it so you could see easily. And I feel like that speaks to some of just the knowledge gap. Like they just realized like, oh, we should group this together and like just look at how our resources are being spent. Carolyn Johnson is a science reporter at The Post. And now, one more thing. For years, there's been this huge discussion, the GOAT discussion, the greatest of all time discussion in basketball. Ben Golliver covers the NBA for The Post. Michael Jordan has been sort of revered as the greatest player ever. But today, not everyone agrees. There's another contender for greatest player, LeBron James. The numbers can't be denied for LeBron James. You played against Michael Jordan. It seems fair. Do you think that he is the best player of all time by a lot, considering numbers? By a lot, no. Okay, but by the numbers. Six finals appearances. Six rings. It's still MJ's world. You cannot tell me in a one-on-one game now that LeBron James wouldn't dominate Mike. Even LeBron James points to LeBron James. 
He said this in an ESPN documentary after winning the NBA championships with the Cleveland Cavaliers. That one right there made me the greatest player of all time. For so many reasons. Now he's with the L.A. Lakers, who are having a really bad season. But Ben says people on Team LeBron can expect some good news tonight. On Wednesday, LeBron James is on track to pass Michael Jordan on the all-time scoring list. Now, Michael Jordan had a career tally of 32,292 points. It's sort of one of those hallowed marks in the sport. And for a guy like LeBron James, who grew up idolizing Michael Jordan, wearing the same jersey number 23. Well, first of all, you know, I wear the number because of Mike. Uh, I think I fell in love with the game because of Mike, seeing what he was able to accomplish. You know, when you're growing up and you're seeing Michael Jordan, you, you, it's almost like a god. So I didn't never believe I could be Mike. It is difficult to draw a complete, you know, cross-generational comparison between these two players. And that's why a lot of people turn to these statistics. Michael Jordan was considered a prototypical guard in the NBA. So he's about six foot six and weighed right around 215 pounds. LeBron James is much bigger, I think much physically stronger. He likes to keep his weight a secret, but it's believed to be around 270 pounds. And he stands about six foot eight. So he's got a couple inches on Jordan. Jordan was more of a tactician with the ball, more like a surgeon, whereas LeBron much more about, you know, pounding it down your throat. The NBA's top scorer is actually Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. But Ben says LeBron is still about 6,000 points away from breaking that record. You know, LeBron's 34 years old, but he's still playing at a very high level. And he's under contract for three more seasons after this one. So it's very possible that LeBron James retires as the NBA's all-time leading scorer if he continues to play as well as he's played here for the next few seasons. Ben Golliver covers the NBA for The Post. LeBron James is expected to break Michael Jordan's record for points scored tonight when the Lakers play the Denver Nuggets. That's it for today's show. I'm Kimberly L. Kelly. Martine Powers will be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.